0: I really can't remember what I first remember about nuns. At the tender age of four, I was sent to a North Dublin convent school where what appeared to be a vast echoing cavern was controlled by a strange black and white alien who never smiled, who had no feet or hair and whose head was surrounded by a huge square box. You called this person sister and you were very afraid of her. You also killed yourself trying to please her Because if you didn't, you had to put out your hand and she slapped you hard with a leather strap she had belted around her waist. She rattled when she walked because she also wore massive wooden rosary beads. And if you were very bold, you had to kiss the silver crucifix on the end of it and say you were sorry to Jesus. The school was divided into two parts. The private, that was us, and the national. We wore blue sashes on our gym slips. They wore red. One day, some of us privates were found talking to the nationals outside the school gates after school. The nun dispersed us and sent us home. The next day, we were strapped. I told my parents, because I genuinely didn't understand why, and I was taken away from the school. Some of them
1: are what you'd expect of nuns, you see. Good. But there's quite a few that aren't. Why? Why? I would say no kindness nor no charity. I'm very fond of the rich people and very, um, you know, turn their back on the poor people. And according to their vows, you see, you'd imagine it is the poor people that come number one.
0: Well, do you have personal experience of that?
1: Yes. Yes. When you go for a medical um, to the school years ago, with the children, you'd have your children nice and all, but there would be the higher-up lads that have their children and the nuns would congregate about them. and We were ordinary, decent, respectable people, you see, we should have been taken notice of, just as the lower type. All the different stratas should be taken notice of, you see. But these did not want... Because I'd say they were out of rich people themselves in any case, you see. That was the time when the dowries had to go into the convent. Isn't yeah, that true? That's true, yeah. Hmm. Well...
0: H- how did they discriminate against you?
1: Well, you could know they were patronising you, you see, and you could know they were looking down on you. And there's nobody smarter than a nice, decent person to pick up when a person is, is uh, you know, looking down on one. You know, you feel that patronage, and your hackles stand up. You see. Do you think they were
0: nicer to the richer girls? Oh, without doubt. In what way?
1: Well, they'd always have them in their company and they'd bring them around and catch their hand and they'd keep away from the poor, poor class like as if they were lepers, you see? Yes.
0: And then there was boarding school. A different breed of nuns, these, who understood your 13-year-old loneliness at being away from home for the first time and how mixed up you were. You got crushes on them. Everyone had a favourite nun who gave you holy pictures and talked to you about life. I went back there recently for the first time and the first shock came as I rattled over the cattle grid at the gate. There were girls playing camogie as usual, but there were boys kicking football on another pitch nearby.
2: I came to the school five years ago and I had nothing really to do with nuns before I came. So I looked on them as strange sort of people but strange in what way? Strange, like well, they were sorta of away from us. I, I looked on nuns as women going round in black habits. And well, they are women going around there, in black well, habits. They well, well, they were sorta of strange in a world of their own, in a convent. Like, I hadn't, I hadn't been out and about, say, before I came here. And when I, I've got to know them over the past few years. And I, they're, they're very nice people. They seem to understand um nearly better than you understand yourself
0: <laughs> do you think they understand boys
2: um, well i s- I should think they have they have had problems i'd say here with the boys
0: oh really what kind of problems
2: well i'd say you see the boys are boys are boys <laughs> they boys can tend to be rough and um
0: how do the nuns stop you being rough? How do they discipline you?
2: Oh, they have their ways of their own to try and um oh i don't know
0: do they keep you in after school do they
2: no no, no, nothing like that they well they they have special ways they can they can talk to you and make you feel ashamed of yourself, i think you know
3: they make you feel guilty
2: make you feel guilty, that's right.
3: They're not too bad, really. Some of them you find are harder to understand than others. Understand in yeah. what way? Well, some some of the nuns are very friendly, and they, you know, they really become friends with with the pupils. But others sort of stand away, a bit and they sort of are still looking down on the pupils. I think, anyway. Do you think they're yeah. uppity? No, they're not uppity, but like sort of putting down the law and order. Sort of some of them you don't get to have the much fun with sometimes, but. Do you ever wonder what they do when they leave school, when they go back into the convent? Well, well, we have a fair idea, like, here what they do, because, well, we seem them going down to Vespers and that sort of thing, but I sort of often wonder what's the use in their life outside the school. Like, I mean, they could be ordinary teachers, besides being nuns, like, all they do is spend... I think they have Mass in the morning and an hour's prayer, an hour's meditation, I think, before Mass, and prayers again in the evening, like, but... Rather than that, I don't think... They're only teachers, really. And some of them do social work, I think, around the town, all right?
0: Do they ever explain to you why they're nuns? Why they're not simply teachers?
3: Yeah, well, they, some of them have said, all right, that they felt they wanted to give their lives to God. Like, but do you understand that? In a way, I do, I suppose, but I, can't they like, give their lives to God by doing the work anyway? Like, isn't your work supposed to be... Part, you know, it's supposed to be a service of God anyway. They don't seem to realise a lot of them. I think that we've changed a lot since they were adolescent girls. But a lot of them do. They try to put themselves back into where we are. But still, they find it hard though, all the same, because they have their own set ideas from when they were young. Like, and we we'll probably end up like that too when we're, when we're their age.
0: It was another shock to meet the Reverend Mother. She was my age, for heaven's sake. Not about a hundred and two, and subject to ordinary human emotions. I asked her if she ever got lonely. Yes,
4: yes. Do you know-
0: face that that difficulty yes, many times? Do you know for whom you get lonely, or is it just a generalized? Well, it thing? can be. You know, there can be. There is a certain loneliness, I suppose, attached to any way of life. In you know, sometimes it can be worse than others, or more aggravated. But I think that always I have been lucky in that I had friends, and. You know, that I could relate easily with people. So, of course, my final year in school, I didn't want to leave the security and warmth and the high that religion gave me. I know now it was adolescent and somehow artificial, but then I couldn't have imagined anything more involving or fulfilling or just plain mind expanding than to tiptoe into a faintly scented chapel just before dawn and blend my mind and meditation with all the beautiful and deeply spiritual thoughts emanating from the bowed and reverent backs of the nuns at their predues. I know now that at some stage they must have been thinking of their breakfasts, or the cold, or their corns, but then I imagined they were above it all. So I indulged in soul-searching and thrilling decisions until I finally announced to my parents that I wanted to be a nun.
5: Nobody knocked on the door or anything, you know, and said come. And nor did they in school. In fact, there was very little emphasis on religious life. You know, we weren't actually asked who was thinking of being a nun, or uh, not that I can remember. But um, it just for some reason or other, I felt drawn to that life. Not that I kind of wanted to be a nun, let us say, or didn't want to get married and didn't enjoy. Uh, company etc etc but um i just felt that something in me was drawn to this life and that i'd have to give it a chance if i wanted to really be happy so i went ahead and gave it a chance you know you were a boarder in school weren't you yes it's been said by lots of
0: people that nuns in boarding schools perhaps exert undue influence on people to enter Is that true? Or is there any basis for that? Well, I
5: certainly can never remember anybody specifically coming in to say how many of you will be nuns or uh, is there anybody who is interested. Um, I think maybe the atmosphere helped in the sense that we were very happy in school and um, the nuns were very friendly, very human, very open, uh, enjoyed a bit of fun, uh, played games with us, all that kind of thing, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of a jump in the dark, let us say, or nothing fearful or scary in the sense of entering. It was simply going to a different corridor, let us say. But um, I wouldn't, um, no, I wouldn't say that the influence does in the sense of, you know, throwing out a net and hoping to catch some of us. No, that, uh, I don't think there was anything of that in it.
0: What would my novitiate have been like if I had joined?
5: I probably expected it to be more like boarding school. It wasn't, in fact. You know, it was uh, it was a very ordered kind of life. You did everything at a set time, together. You had long times of silence. And, of course, that didn't suit me one bit, as you noted. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, then we had long, uh, you know, times of prayer and walks and, you know, laughing at very little. <laughs> Stupid kind of jokes, as I thought at the time. Um, I can remember once all my mo- um, not being allowed to have visitors for my birthday. That nearly killed me, my first birthday in the novitiate. And I knew mum and dad were outside That now, I I really found tough. You know, it really kind of showed, you. God, this is definitely something different. It is, we're cut off now, marooned, as it were. Had you expected to have visitors? Um, I don't know. I can't remember the details, but I do remember being terribly disappointed and quite upset about it. But you accepted it as discipline? Oh, yes. You took all these things in your stride. Probably we took more then because we expected it. In certain ways from once we started on this kind of road then we maybe would be able to take even now we would have scrubbed floors polished floors and uh, all that kind of thing but um and not for the sake of scrubbing them you know or not for the sake of polishing them Uh, cleaning the church and doing all the odd jobs dusting and polishing that one would normally do but of course in the novitiate the shine would want to be a little bit higher (laughs) do you think that in any
0: sense that the novice mistress tries to break a girl's spirit
5: i would like to think not now that doesn't mean that somebody couldn't be broken but um No, I wouldn't say anybody would intentionally set out to break a girl's spirit. They may have uh, views that it would be better if Sonsha weren't as vivacious or as bouncy or uh, self-centred or something and hope to channel whatever talents or whatever she had in another direction. But... um, I I don't like the word breaking, you know, I think in terms of breaking in a young horse or something. Uh, No, I wouldn't say somebody sets out. Maybe they would hope that they would be a little more religious or a little more ladylike or a little more this, that or the other, and in the effort it would appear like breaking. But, um, no, I, I wouldn't like to think that somebody set out kind of to break somebody. The vows
0: I felt I already knew about. Poverty, chastity and obedience... Obedience would have been no problem. I'd been subject to someone or other all of my life. And poverty would have been no problem either, I felt. I'd never had any money of my own anyway. And wouldn't I be well fed, housed and clothed for the rest of my life?
5: If you asked me, dear today, what is the price of a pound of butter, I would honestly have to say I don't know.
0: Any nuns I asked about poverty during the making of this programme were by no means naive about it. They had carefully thought out their attitudes and were aware of charges that, for instance, in deprived areas, they were seen to live very well.
6: Yes, I think that that's a problem, Deirdre, and it, it, it happens even in our own country here. You know, you often hear the charge against sisters and priests that they're living in a big house and they have cars and, you know, others don't have enough to eat or just about subsisting. I think a balance has to be kept here too, because if one is going to just give up you know, uh, a certain um, level of life in order to be just to become like people among whom you live and work. I think that's false. I really think that that is not saying anything. And people don't want to be brought lower, they want to be raised a bit higher, I think, in life. So that's one side of it. The other side, I think there is some truth in some countries, in some places, where religious are possibly unaware of how people in their society are surviving, what their incomes are, what the price of, for example, clothes and food for children are. And because of that, they may not have a realistic view. And that may lead to their appearing to be living above the uh, standard of the average family among whom they live and work. The Pope has said in Mexico recently that he was critical
0: of nuns who abandon a life of prayer and opt for socio-political activity.
6: Have you any comments on that? I have. I have some very, very, um, shall I say, strong feelings on it as well as comments. I think that we, we, we have to be in the world of today, the world of 79. And being in the world of 79 means being close to the people among whom we live and with whom we work not for whom we work if we are close to those people we cannot uh, departmentalize their lives or our lives they are affected by the political institution the social institution the education institution all the institutions of our society and if we are to be caring for one another not just religious caring for people but Christians, human beings caring for one another, we cannot ignore these institutions in our society because people's individual, personal lives are very concretely affected by those institutions. That is not to say that if one is caring about the effect of these institutions in the lives of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that one is abandoning a life of prayer. Why do you think the Pope said it? He may have been referring, I have never been in South America, but I have, I have a lot of contacts with South America, and it may be a reference to um, some clergy and some sisters who are very involved with the underprivileged, and the underprivileged in South America is the starving. And the starving there, they must connect that with the political regime of that country. And there's no use in talking to starving people about God and about prayer and that you're praying for them and you're doing nothing about it. So I can understand why people who are dealing with starving people, that they have to bring about a change in the institutions in South America. It's the political, economic institution. They must be changed. So it may look as if people are over it that the clergy and sisters and others trying to bring about a change are overemphasizing that side of life there but perhaps if any one of us and even the pope himself if we were to live for 10 years there he may also have to come to realize that certain institutions in our society must be changed if people are not to be starving anymore were you surprised when he said it i was disappointed also at this, you know he talked about uh, the simple joys of the poor. I was I was a bit dis- I was a bit disappointed in that. I'm I'm very proud of, of our present Holy Father and I think he is going to be a fantastic Pope. But the simple joys of the poor, um that's it's very hard to come to grips with that if people are actually starving. And if you know that you are sure of your bed and your meal tomorrow and you're meeting human beings who are not sure of the next meal, it's very difficult to see what what their simple joys are. Therefore, in a situation such as South America, it seems to me that the institutions of that society will have to be changed, whereby everyone has the opportunity and the right to a decent living and a certain standard of living. And in order to bring that about, somebody must be involved in changing The situation so that you don't have a small percentage living in luxury and a large percentage starving. And the only way that can be changed is through the legitimate institutions of the society, which are the political, the economic, the social, the educational. So you would
0: countenance uh, membership of almost guerrilla groups to
6: overthrow illegal regimes? That's a very, um, that sounds very radical. People, human beings, have have rights, and they have the right to shelter and to food, and to a basic education. And if other groups in society are preventing their brethren from having those rights, change has to happen. When I you talk about um, guerrilla groups, that well, sounds it, a bit bit, extreme, it sounds a bit um, as if it's going to be very very under- violent. Um, underground groups, shall I say? With, uh, on condition that they are not violent or taking life. But I would countenance uh, movements um, that would support any change to better the conditions of the very poor and the starving. Hopefully that will not entail any violence or the loss of life or a... Uh, uh, not uh, giving respect to the rights of other people. I think that, you know, it's very hard to keep a balance there. But I imagine that there there must, be, there must be pressure. There must be pressure groups, maybe is a better word than guerrilla groups. Certain pressure groups that are respectful of the rights of other people and the needs of other people, but at the same time, keep bringing to the notice of the people who can change by pressurising in one way or another. In each society you have different ways of bringing about that pressure, I should think. The danger always is that if things don't change that people tend to become violent and um, things become chaotic and there's revolution. But I think revolution doesn't have to be a bloody thing. It doesn't have to be a loss of life thing. A revolution can take place by means of very slowly, granted, but radical changes. Of course, it's always easier
0: for someone like me to identify with smaller problems of poverty.
1: Long ago, you see, the nuns used to get, get the class around them and impress them how important it was to be truthful and to be honest. You see, we used to have very great sessions of that. And, of course, I used to take that in very, very much. And I thought to myself, I'd be honest anyway. She used to often say, what would what happen if you were dishonest or all those things? One day, anyhow, myself and my brother were coming down to school and I was about six years old at the time. And we were scuffing our feet along, a thing we should do, you see, knocking the tops off our boots. And I stripped a, a tanner, a sixpenny bit. And sixpenny bits, you know, were very valuable at that time. And anyway, I said to my brother, I'm going to hand up this to the nun. Dick, uh, Dick uh, tried to coax me to. Spend it when we'd arrived down in the town. And oh, I, I thought, I'm going to hand this up to the nun. And when we came down to the Max house, these six houses we used to pass, and the Max were there too, and they'd be always ready to pop out and come with us, even though we were never to be walking with those, because used of curse like the devil easy, but you couldn't walk away from, they'd wait to be with us. And of course, when they came out, I popped up the tanner, and I said... Uh, I'm going to hand up this to the nun, oh you old fool, we'll, why don't you come down the town and we'll buy sweets and we'll have a right day, oh no, I'm going to be an honest person now and I'm going to hand up this to the nun, and the whole way down they put the pressure on me, When one was tired eh uh, and the others, no, and even my brother got at me to do it, and it was very, very tempting, I was as mad for a sweet as any of them, but no, I held firm. And when we went in and said our prayers and then sat around the class, up I shot and over to the nun and I said, handing out this, the great one, you see, handing up the tanner. Look what I found, sister. I handed up that. Oh, you good girl, she says, you good, honest girl. And, of course, I thought to myself I was most good. And the next thing she said, you're a good honest girl. Well now I must see what girl as most deserving is some poor, poor deserving child to buy some bread and she popped her eyes on the young ones that were after the young Max and she said Come over here, Nelly, take that home home to your mammy to buy a couple of loaves of bread. Loaves of bread were twopence each at that time and they'd have three big loaves of bread that I feed the family take that home to your poor mother now and she'll buy some bread for you. And of course, the young one took the the tanner and she gave one fierce look at me. At the minute playtime came, she was down and bought her big bag of sweets and chewed them into her, oozing out of her lips and looked at me and rigged me and everything and said, you're not going to get one, you're not going to get a single one. You wouldn't buy him, now you can go to the Dickens and, and we're going to eat him. Well, when that didn't make a dishonest
7: person the v.
0: Obedience, poverty and then there was chastity. I wondered a bit about that.
7: I think they probably would be sexually frustrated. I think um, sex is a very normal, natural function and I think the celibate life must at times be frustrating. How do you think they cope with it? Well, I, I presume they're very disciplined people in general. I mean, to live that life, you'd have to be very disciplined, I'm sure. But um, I'd say most of our frustrations come out in some other way. And that's probably one of the reasons I, I wouldn't particularly like my children going to school with nuns. Particularly these days when most teachers are married. When I went to school, um, female teachers went um Married very very often when married, you know, but now all the female teachers are married and I think that's a good thing because um, they usually have children of their own which gives them a better understanding of your children and I feel that's important.
0: The nuns I spoke to had obviously thought it out.
4: I see my vow of chastity as practically the most important vow I have uh, and I see it as it's Um, it's my love for the person of Christ and um, he is the one thing necessary for me Um, and because he is the one thing necessary for me and I've chosen this lifestyle then I bypass marriage, I bypass giving exclusive love to a man. Now, that doesn't exclude that I doesn't, don't love other people. I do love other people, and my, my duty is, and my vocation is, to love people very much. Um, but the way I express my love is a different way to the way, say, married people would express their love.
0: Would you say, perhaps, that chastity is a rather negative virtue when you're surrounded entirely by women?
5: Um, what I say I don't think so you've got desires and hopes and fears and all the other that you have always had and uh, I suppose when you were in the novitiate you wouldn't have thought of that aspect of life as much as we'll say the obedience and the being cut off and maybe not being able to talk to the girls in school and uh, you know been very much apart that would have entered the field would be more difficult in ways than chastity I suppose later on when one began to kind of get out and about and um, move around the chastity would have entered the field a little bit more Uh, early on you wouldn't have it wouldn't have been as noticeable especially anyhow we were only what 18 17 you know so that you wouldn't uh, in fact I think in terms of getting married at that stage anyhow you know so you'd be another couple of years i suppose before things but do you think would 17
0: on. is uh, old enough to take a vow
5: of perpetual chastity? well you wouldn't have taken vows until yeah. you know you'd be two and a half years in the novitiate before you'd in fact take a vow and then it would be temporary so that in fact you have a very long engagement we had seven and a half years before we took final vows which is a fairly lengthy engagement. Very few girls, I think, would be prepared <laughs> <laughs> to be engaged for that. Length.
0: You're referring to the Bride of Christ idea?
5: Well, I suppose, if one likes to think of it like that.
0: Well, I've heard it said recently that uh, this Bride of Christ idea
5: is a male idea. Yes, I must say it never appealed to me, I have to admit. You know, it. I don't like the idea. Maybe it's, as you say, the connotation and all that, but um, I would find it very difficult to think in terms of being a bride of Christ. Well, it seems that uh, a male-dominated church, perhaps, is trying to
0: equate nunhood, if there is such a word, with uh, the male-female state, dominated as usual by the male.
5: I hadn't thought of it like that, now Jotra. But... um, It's just one of those images I don't like. Do you have any idea why? Uh, It's very abstract, and it's very unreal in ways. Now, maybe somebody more uh, learned than I could go into the theology of it or some such thing, but um, I I don't like the idea. I never did. You know, it's it's such a human term that I cannot kind of think... uh, You know, I can't be real about it.
4: I went on a holiday to a sister of mine who was married, and um, I was very conscious while there that while they were very, very happy and loved each other uh, very much, um, that that way of life was not for me. That I had to give myself totally to the Lord without. How did you see that? How did you know that? I was quite conscious within myself of you know that, yeah, men were some men that I knew were very wonderful people. Um, But they weren't sufficient for me. They weren't enough for me. I felt they would never love me as much as Jesus loved me.
0: So, to make a long story short, my parents asked me to wait for a year before entering and my vocation evaporated. Of course, there are different types of vocations. Take the contemplatives. It's largely incomprehensible to a great number of people why any young girl would shut herself away from the world for the rest of her life. I set out on a snowy morning to interview the Reverend Mother of the Cistercians, one of the most austere of all orders. Mother had agreed in advance to the interview, but she hadn't realised I would want to use a tape recorder. She felt it wouldn't be in order to put her voice on tape, that she would need a chapter decision on it, but as I'd come so far, and probably couldn't come again, we did the interview anyway, and I transcribed it later. The actress, Deirdre O'Mara, is the voice of Mother Imelda. I came upon Glencairn Abbey at 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm sure it was my imagination, but it was a very weird experience, driving up the long, potholed driveway, and trying to put myself in the situation of someone who had driven it in a horse and carriage 40 years before, and had never seen it since. I don't know what I expected to find, but I was rather disappointed to see empty fields, no black clothed reapers, no archaic farm machinery, nothing, in fact, to indicate that this was anything but an ordinary working farm. The abbey itself is of grey stone, with a little gravelled crescent before the front door, which was open. There was a little notice on it Please ring bell. I did. Inside there was a small hallway which was, incongruously enough, divided in two by a modern wood counter, as wide as a bar in a public house. And here was the first sign of a community living apart. Affixed to it was the legend, Enclosure. When the sister portress came out, I asked if it were possible to make a phone call. She said there was a phone in the chaplain's room. If I went out the front and all around the building to the back, she'd meet me there. I went through a large quadrangular courtyard and while I was waiting for her to reappear, I had a look around. There was a large double door to one side of it which was slightly ajar. Unable to resist, in spite of the forbidding enclosure, no admittance notice on it, I had a peep. Disappointed again, more fields, another farmyard and some farm machinery. My guide reappeared and I made my phone call. Old copies of the Irish Independent and the Farmer's Journal were piled on the battered furniture in the tiny room. By the time I got back to the front door, Mother Imelda, the abbess, had appeared and we went into the parlour. She went through a door on her side of the counter and I went through one three feet from it on mine. We shook hands and sat on either side of an identical counter in the inner room. I asked her about the absence of a grill.
8: Oh, Uh, That's been done since last Easter. We were all thrilled about it. It was a double grill, you know. There there, there was a wooden partition with this wire mesh on the top of it, going to the ceiling on your side, and there was more mesh on our side which had an oblong shape cut out of it. There was a light veil over this, which we were allowed to move aside if the person we were talking to was, was a parent or a priest. But we had to keep it closed for everyone else... So all they saw was the outline of your head. And there was no question of touching. I remember just being able to get my little finger through the mesh to touch my mother. Oh, yes. We all think it's, it's great that it's gone. Particularly the young ones. And they can all see their friends now, too, you know. Is there any other reform that you think is particularly good? Oh, yes. We, we get up much later now... We used to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Now we don't have to get up till 4.15. Well, actually, it's 4.15 on weekdays. We get up at, at, at uh, 10 to 4 on Sundays and feast days because the office is a bit longer. Oh, but you've no idea how much of a difference that makes. It's really wonderful. Well, what time do you go to bed? At about half past 8. Oh, and, and you might like to know that the older nuns have a dispensation. They don't have to get up until about 6.30. How is your day divided up? Vigils um, begin at 25 to 5. And then we have meditation and lexio. What's lexio? Oh, it's spiritual reading. Then sometime between this and Lord's at half past seven, we've breakfast. <laughs> That's changed, too. We used to all sit down together... No, we we just help ourselves. Uh, then we have lords, which is followed by mass and lexio, or meditation. Terse is at 9.35, and our first work period of the day starts at 10 o'clock. Do you do all the heavy work yourselves? Uh, no, well, no, we we have four monks here from Montmellery who do all of the heavy work that we can't manage and one of them's our, our chaplain as well can i ask you um what about taxes oh we're treated just like farmers we pay rates and taxes on our rateable valuation we work then until 12:30 and then we have sext oh sext is one of the shortest hours of the office it's only about 7 minutes and it's called hours oh yes yes we 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 call each of the periods of the office an hour with the capital H uh, then we have, we have lunch at one o'clock some of the nuns have a little siesta some do crochet or handwork or any various little things until noon and that's at, at 2.45 um, after noon we have our second work period from 3 to 5.30 and then we have vespers at 10 to 6 supper then and then an interval Um, what's an interval? Oh, it's a period when we're free to read spiritual books or meditate. Uh, that then brings us to Compline at five to eight, and then it's bedtime. It all seems to be very ordered. Do you have any recreation periods during the day? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, our lifestyle doesn't permit it. We don't consider it necessary in a life regulated by nature... Our intervals for Lectio and meditation, I I, I suppose that'd be our recreation. Well, um, what about holidays? Ah, no, no, we never take holidays. Uh, One of the innovations since Vatican II is that once a month we each have what we call Hermitage Day, where we can do anything we like. So what would anything be that you like? Well, we're dispensed from the office for that day. Oh, and, and we don't have to take our meals in community. So we... Well, we, we could take a picnic, go for a walk by the river. And and we have two little wooden sheds in the ground. We can sit there if the weather is bad and meditate or do a bit of reading. Oh, we, we always look forward to our hermitage days. They're wonderful. Do you watch television? No, we used to. But, do you know, about, about five years ago... One of the postulants entering brought all her furniture with her. And she had an old black-and-white television set. Well, what kind of programmes do you watch? Ah, well, there's a religious programme on, on Sunday nights. And, of course, we always watch the Pope. Do you watch the news? No, 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 we don't. Can I ask why not? of course. Well, we don't... we don't need to. If there's anything we need to know, the chaplain will tell us... Oh, we find out things when people talk to us. Well, are you aware of what's going on in the outside world? Oh, yes. Yes, we are. Uh, Just last night at intercessions, we prayed for the soul of the assassinated ambassador in Afghanistan. How do you know about him? Somebody rang up and asked for the prayers. Every evening during Compline, we have intercessions where any member of the community can ask for special prayers. And people know this, and they always ring up. Do you have a radio? Oh, a radio. Uh, I think, I think there's one in the infirmary. And how about newspapers? Ah, no, no, we we don't get any. But I think the chaplain does. Do you observe total silence, Mother? Uh, well, the, the silence is not as severe as it used to be conversation is now permitted if it's necessary for work purposes and of course if a nun wishes to have a conversation with another nun she can ask permission ah I'm afraid the old sign language is going to die out with the older nuns although it is still in use it was very efficient you know you could know what someone wanted 50 yards away You might not want to answer this question, Mother, but can you tell me, has women's lib affected you here? Women's lib? Oh, no, no. That has no place in our lives. Well, are you aware of it? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, we are, but... But, you see, we think that we have the most liberated form of life anyway. We made free decisions to enter here, and no-one is forcing us to stay. And anyway... Everything, just everything, is decided here by majority decision. Every morning, we go into the chapter room, and we read a chapter of our rule. Then, if there are any decisions to make which affect our lives, we have a secret ballot system. Each nun has a little black marble and a little white one. We pass around two bags. One is for voting, and one is for rejects. So... If a nun wants to vote yes, she drops her white marble into the voting bag and the black one into the rejects bag. Oh, and it's vice versa for no. No one else sees which way she voted, so I I think that's very democratic. And in that way, we control every aspect of our own lives. I don't see why we should ever need women's lib.
0: Making a programme like this is a little like whistling in the wind. You're trying to categorise a group of people who can't possibly fall into any convenient slots. So you're trying to find out what makes nuns tick. You might as well try to find out what makes people tick. They're in every profession, embrace every nationality, are of every political persuasion. They live in convents, ordinary houses, schools, communes, tigines, caravans. There's even a French order which lives exclusively in prisons. They man-picket lines and do the work that no one else will do, like nurse lepers. But, of course, nuns at work would be the subject of another documentary. They have attitudes to modern life which range from the spiritual to the radical. But I found that what they all had in common was serenity, peace, total conviction that they were living the right life, and, above all, happiness.